0: 1918, uh, the United States government finished building what we know as, anybody know what building this is? Fort Knox. Fort Knox. Uh, it, it's sort of a cultural icon and and even is synonymous with um, something that's difficult to get into. If you were to try to break into Fort Knox, which I wouldn't suggest, but... Let's just say you were looking for 5,000 tons of gold. Well, this would be the only place that you could find it, okay? And so if you were to try to break into Fort Knox, here's what you would find. Um, You would find that if you tried to go in through the sides, that there's granite walls that are, are four feet thick that actually prevent you from getting in the sides of the building. And if you went, well, okay, then... I will tunnel my way in, I'll, I'll, I'll dig under and dig up. Good luck, okay? Because the base of it, down underneath it are um, a number of feet of concrete, but then after you get through that concrete, you have 10 feet of granite that this building sits on. Now, let's just hypothetically say you were able to make it in, okay? Because you're that awesome. Once you got in, what you would find is a vault, and the vault itself has a 22-ton door that blocks the way to get into that 5,000 tons of gold that you're looking for. And if you said, well, I'm not going to break the door down, I'm just going to pick the lock, well, here's what you need in order to get into said vault. You need 10 employees who work at Fort Knox. And each one of them have a portion of the code that allows you to get into the door. And none of the others know the other parts of the code. They just know their own. So you need all 10 parts of that code. And let's say, hypothetically, that because you're that awesome, that you made it in to that vault. In order to get out, you would have to get past the 30,000 military people who are stationed there. Good luck. Good luck. There's a reason why at the beginning of the Second World War, that most European nations stored their gold here, that the Magna Carta was stored there, that the Declaration of Independence was stored there, the crown jewels from the United Kingdom were stored there. Um, It's said to be atomic bomb proof, the vault that's inside this thing. We protect the things that are important to us, don't we? we? We guard the things that are important to us. It's the reason that it, it takes an hour to get through the security line at the airport now. Either we guard the things that are important to us, don't we? We, we put a hedge around them and, and we protect them. So here's the thing, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the, the scriptures are going to talk to us about, about guarding the things that are most important to us. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, we're we're so glad that you're here and you get to look in on what our Fort Knox should be as followers of Christ. And here's the thing, we've made it a lot of different things. If you were to sort of do a straw poll, what's, what's the most important, what's the thing that we're supposed to guard above all else as followers of Christ? If you were to do a straw poll, even amongst Christians, here's what you'd probably hear. You'd probably hear, well... It's important for us to guard good theology, totally agree. It's important for us to guard having the right worldview. totally agree. It's important for us to guard the religious liberties and the rights that we have, I agree. But it's not our Fort Knox. It's not the thing that we're called to guard above all else. If you want to find out what that thing is, open with me to 1 John, chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off this morning. And what John, remember, he's a friend of Jesus. He's leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. He's cared for Jesus' mom. Somebody came up to me after the service last week and said, I've never thought about it before, but isn't it interesting that Jesus asked John to care for his mom instead of asking one of his few brothers to care for her? How do you think they would have felt? I'm like... That's a great question. James is like, hey, Jesus, remember me. Anyway, um, he's cared for Jesus' mom. He's a pastor of a number of churches, sort of oversees them. and, And he's writing them this letter about what it looks like to hold on to the things that are most important in a world that's pressing in, in a culture that's pluralistic In many ways, anything goes, and spirituality is held up as something to be pursued, but has very little impact on the way that they actually live. John writes this letter to those churches, and here's what he says, chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we've come to know him. So here he says, and we know that we know that we know that we know him, if... If, not, not if we believe the right things and if we can pass a doctrinal exam and if we've read the entire, here, here's the here's thing. We know, we know, we know that we know him if we, what? Keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. See, John has zero place for, I'm a spiritual person, but it doesn't impact the way that I live. He says, no, 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 when, when we believe in the Jesus who came and lived and died that John touched and saw and heard, then it absolutely changes the way that we live. And we know that we know him if it does. This word keep in the Greek is a really interesting word. It, it could be translated protect or guard or even like you could imagine putting something under surveillance, that in our life we put this this thing this one thing under surveillance that we put it above everything else it's our fort Knox and what is that well we keep his what commandments you go okay well there's a lot of those yeah there's 613 in the old testament and you go well man where's our checklist right how are we going to, is there an app for that where we can load this in and go, well, kept that one, kept that one, did that one, did that one, and, and how do we really know? If there's that many, how do we really actually know? Well, John is going to circle in, he's going to zoom in on one commandment. He's going to zoom in on one, just, just one, and it's the commandment to love, Here's what he writes in verses 7 and 8. Skip down if you have your own Bible with me. He says this. He says, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. See, he goes from commandments to just one. We're just talking about one. That's it. No no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, raise your hand if you're confused. This is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. And it's a new commandment. And you want to go, hey, John, like you're inspired and all, so I get it. You can say what you want to say. You're under the power of the spirit. I get it, but no new commandment. This is a new commandment. Seems like it contradicts itself. Is the command to love new or is it old? Um, A few years ago, my friend invited me to go to the BMW Invitational Golf Tournament that was hosted here at Cherry Hills Country Club. It was an amazing experience. And I I play golf. I play three or four times every year. (laughs) And I love getting out there and playing golf. I really do. I'm, I'm no good, but I love being out there. And I think I know a thing or two about golf. And I went and I watched Rory McIlroy get up to the ball, and I watched him tee off, and I watched his body torque in a way that I would need to go and live at a chiropractor's office if I did that myself. And, and I watched him hit the ball 340 yards, because it is Colorado, straight down the fairway. And here's what I realized. I don't golf. <laughs> I don't golf like that. That's for sure. Do I know how to golf? Well, sure, I know how to golf, but not like that. Um, William Barclay, one of the commentator, commentator, he wrote, a game may become a new game when you see a master play it. Is it a new command or is it an old one? Well, it's ancient, and yet the extent and the application that Jesus of Nazareth takes love to makes it completely new. It's it's completely different. No, No one in the face of the planet had seen love defined like this. In fact, when Jesus, after he washes his disciples' feet, he gathers them around him. Here's what he says. He says, a new command I give you that you would love one another say these two words with me just as so it he goes hey I've just washed your feet. I'm about to go to the cross. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. So he changes the ball game. He changes the way that we live out this ancient command. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The Old Testament says it there. The Jews would say the Shema every morning. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God um, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. But what Jesus does is he takes it to a completely new level and a completely different degree. Love. And John says, keep this. Guard this. Protect it. Put it under surveillance in your life. Because it's going to be really easy to get off track. It's going to be really easy to go down a a different road. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus picks up a command from the Old Testament. I'll show you how he took these these commands to different levels and different extents. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which, just a quick time out, was a really good command back then. It meant that you couldn't take retribution beyond the level that you were wronged is it was a way of prohibiting somebody from killing another person if they just knocked out one of their teeth. If you knock out someone's tooth, you just get your tooth knocked out. And Jesus says, okay, that's not a bad command, but I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He's taking what was a good command and saying, okay. We're not even going to be about retributive justice at all anymore. We're going to do good to those even who would wrong us. You know, as followers of Jesus, we do not read the words of Christ and the command of Christ to love alongside of the 612 other commands. We're followers of Jesus. We read the commands of Jesus above everything else, and everything else runs through them. It's why the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What's the word? Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Guard this. Guard it above all. Keep this command. And here's his point. Here's his point. Is a relationship with Jesus results in, or should result in, if it's genuine, loving like Jesus? Relationship with Jesus results in loving like Jesus. Perfectly? No. Imperfectly? Absolutely. But mean, hateful, bitter, vindictive, violent Christian should be an oxymoron. Because our way is the way of love. And friends, true love for God is not expressed in sentimental language. It's not expressed in ethereal experience. It's expressed on the ground in love. In love for those who love us and in love for those who don't. It's the reason that the early followers of Jesus were not called the belief. They were not called the theology. Early followers of Jesus were called, anyone know? The way. The way. Why? Well, because they lived in his way. It's what a disciple is. It's someone who lives in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. It is what a disciple is. And it's what you and I, if we claim to be followers of Christ, are called to. So here's the question that we need to wrestle with this morning. Am I living in the way of love? Am I living in the way of love? And what John's going to do is he's going to unpack in the second chapter of this letter a number of things that start to rise up in us as we live in this way. Verse 4 chapter 2, he continues. He's going to talk about what comes out of us as this gets into us. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. So he's just repeating what he already said. We know that we know that we know that we know that we know him if we love like him. Because relationship with Jesus leads to loving like Jesus. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, this word to, to love, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Anybody else, you, go, you read that and go, oh, wow, that's, that's quite the statement, John, that as we walk in the way of love, love, God's love is perfected in us, that's quite the bullseye on the board, isn't it? Um, We we get this word perfected wrong often. There's not a great English translation of the Greek word that is the word perfected, which is, uh, the Greek word is uh, telos. Will you say that with me? It means to complete or fulfill a goal. You could picture it as a marathon runner getting across the finish line, throwing their arms up in the air and going, I did it. I did it. It's the idea that We become who God dreams and designs and intends that we would be. There's this interesting, and this is just for all the nerds, Greek nerds in the room here, okay? Which both of you are going to really appreciate this. There's this... (sighs) fascinating play on words that's going on in the Greek because we read this word command, and that's what we're intended to keep. See, this word telos is the Greek word uh, to finish or to complete, or we translate it in the scriptures, um, to be perfected. The word for commandment is entole. Will you say that with me? It's two words put together, in and telos. Literally, In the end, commandment. In the end, or keeping the end in mind. What John wants to say is protect this, guard this, above all else, because by it you are going to be the types of people that God dreamed that you would be. So you hold on to in the end. You keep the end in mind because you're becoming a type of person, an eternal being. And you have to keep that in mind. The decisions that you make in your family, the decisions that you make in your workplace, the decisions you make in your home and your relationships, keep the end goal in mind. See, a commandment forces us to zoom out from the immediate and to focus on what's really important and what we really want our lives to say in the end. And here's what John says. Love is the fuel, it's the motivation, and it's the finish line. It's where we're leading to. It's the love of God perfected in us of growth. We have this um, growth chart in my son Reed's room and every once in a while, every few months, we'll go and we'll put our kids up against it, and we'll mark it, and we'll put a date. Anybody else do this? There's a wall in your house or something like that? Yeah. And we love tracking their growth. It's interesting, though, as as adults, we don't track our growth in the same ways, do we? Because we we don't want to go up when we get older, do we? because we're not growing up as far as height. We're only growing one direction if the numbers go north, right? So we track our growth down. That's what we want as adults. That's what I, right? But what John's saying is, no, 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 no. We want want to grow as followers of Christ. We, We want to develop. We want to mature. And there's only one way we do that. It's not a myriad of things. There's one thing that causes us to grow. Good theology is important. Good programs and activities are helpful. But everything, everything that moves towards maturity in the Christian life moves towards love. That's it. All Christian growth and maturity is a result of love. Let me say that again. All Christian growth and maturity is a result of love and progress in love. If you want to grow, decide to love. And there's no plan B. We don't grow beyond that. It's not like, okay, well, now that I've nailed love, what's next? More love. That's what's next. Grow deeper into it. Grow more because of it. If you want to grow, love. It's that simple. Love when it's difficult. Love when it's inconvenient. Love when it means having a hard conversation. Love when it means speaking truth. Love when it means serving when you're exhausted. Love when it means forgiving when you've been genuinely wronged. If you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, there's one bullseye that you're shooting at, and it's what? Love. That's it. So, um, the Apostle Paul will write to the church at, at Ephesus, and here's what he'll say. He'll say, well, rather, speaking the truth in what? Love. We are to what? Grow up. We're, we're going we're gonna to mature. We're going we're gonna to get bigger. We're going to get stronger. We're going to have our feet under us in every way to him who's the head into Christ. You want to grow into Christ, live in the way of Christ, and it's the way of love. What John says, it's the the motivation, it's the fuel and the finish line of maturity, of growth. So here's my question for you. How would you chart your growth in love? Are you a more loving person at this time, this year, than you were last year? And if you're not, can I give you just a few things that might help? Oftentimes, the reason we refuse the way of love is because we doubt the great lover. Uh, the scriptures are clear. We love because he first loved us. And if we, if we are on uncertain ground when it comes to God's love for us, the way that that comes out of our lives is that we are uncertain in the way that we love others. It's the first step is to abide, as John chapter 15 says, that we abide in his love. We make our home there. And it starts to be what we give to other people. Maybe there's one situation you're staring at right now. One really hard thing that you're looking at, the decision you have to make, a a relationship that's gone awry. Here's my question, what does it look like to bring love to bear on that situation? Here's the thing. John gives us a second result in verse 9 of living in the way of love. Here's what he says, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for what? For stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, here's what John's saying, is that love is the guidance and protection on the journey. Um, This uh, last summer, we had the chance to go to Mount Hermon, which is just outside of Santa Cruz. It's in the mountains, the, the massive redwoods and when we first got to that area, my family went on a, on a hike on this really well-worn trail that thousands of people had walked that same day, probably. And my son, my oldest son, Ethan, who's eight years old, kept running ahead And then coming back to us and running back, and he kept leaving the pack, and my wife and I looked at each other. There was this massive redwood that had this hollowed-out trunk, and we thought that we could fit the four of us, me and my two youngest kids, in said trunk. And so the next time Ethan ran away, we all went and we hid inside this tree. (laughs) Okay, don't send me my Parent of the Year award this week, okay? (laughs) And don't judge me either. You if you'd meet him, you'd do the same thing. Okay, so he runs away and we all go and hide, right? And so we're there and we're, we're peeking out and he runs back to us and he's where we were and he starts looking around. It's the look that we did this for, okay? It's the, it's the terrified, like, where are my parents? I really do love them, look. And I never thought I'd say this, but I want them back, look, okay? And so he's looking around and um, a normal person at that point would have come out and said, okay, game's over. See, you shouldn't run away. We kept hiding, okay? okay, He goes up to somebody and they ask him, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, right? And he's like, I'm looking for my parents. And then we see him just jet down the trail, just start running, right? And we're like, oh no, that's probably not good. And um, at that point, We came out and yelled for him, Hey, Ethan, Ethan, we're over here. But this picture of him terrified is just stuck in my mind in all of its glory and splendor, right? (laughs) Totally lost, totally lost. And when John writes about, Hey, if you choose hate instead of love, you stumble. It literally, it's the Greek word "scandalon." You get stuck in a, in a snare. Or when you walk in the way of love, you know where you're going. When you walk in evil, when you walk in hate, you're like my son who's looking around. You, you have no clue where you're going because the foundation of the very cosmos is love. And when we choose to live against that, We live against the God who loves us and created us, and we get lost. And we get lost. And when John claims that walking in the light leads to no cause for stumbling and knowing where you're going, he's pleading with us. You guys, there's a better way. There's a better way than anger. There's a better way than bitterness. There's a better way than lack of forgiveness. There's a way to know where you are and to know whose you are and to know how to move forward in his world. There is a better way. I don't know about you, though, but I find myself slipping back into believing that issues are more important than people And that if I win an argument, that's the end goal. Winning the argument isn't the end goal, friends. People are the end goal. People are the end goal. And when people become a problem to solve, rather than people to be loved, we've lost. We've lost. We've lost what's most important to us. We've lost our first love. We've lost our Fort Knox, if you will. When we become obsessed with power over influence... You get power through possession. You get influence through love. You want to you impact the world around you? Love the world around you in the way that just as Jesus did it. I get lost sometimes. I don't know about you, but I get lost sometimes in my own pain, in the way that people have wronged me, in the way that they've hurt me. It's easy for me to get off that path and to justify some of the things that stir up in my soul. But here's what John says love. It is the guidance and the protection. It's the true north on the Christian pathway walking with Jesus. He gives one final result. Here's what he says. And in verses 12 through 14, it looks sort of maybe like a poem in your Bible if you're following along. It was either a poem or a a song, probably, that the early church would have sung. And so here, I'm going to sing it for you today. Um, Just kidding. Just kidding. He says this, I'm writing to you little children. And and just, there's going to be little children, young men, and fathers. And there's um, no shortage of debate about what John is actually talking about here. Some people think that he's talking about stages along the spiritual growth um, continuum. Some people think he's talking about literal children and fathers. I tend to think he's talking about different places you can be as you walk with Christ in general. Here's what he says. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. For, for some reason, John and the early church wanted to get these truths into people's lives. They wanted to get the truth of forgiveness in deeply. They wanted to get the truth that they were part of no new thing, but that God is from the beginning. They're jumping in a stream that's been moving since the beginning of time. And those are both things he's already addressed in this letter. But there's one thing he addresses that's new. And here's what he says. You have overcome the evil one. He says it twice. He says it to um, to young men or to people who are in the everyday battle of what it looks like and what it means to follow the way of Jesus. Here is his reminder to them: You want victory in the Christian life. If, if you want to hold on to the one who's holding you, if you want to walk in the victory that he's already purchased, you walk in the way of love. Because love is both the weapon, it's the way that we fight, ironically, and it's the prize at the end of it all. See, here's the deal. The old way said that you gain victory through power, you gain victory through coercion, you gain victory through might, and you gain victory by having your way. And whatever it takes in order to do those things, you use. If it takes violence, you use violence. If it takes manipulation, you use manipulation. Whatever it takes, you use. So Jesus is walking down the road, um, leaving a town in Samaria, a town who didn't accept his teachings, and his disciples, this is in Luke chapter 9, turn to him and say, hey Jesus, we've got an idea. Let's call fire down on that city. And here's what they're doing. All they're doing is reading their Old Testament. All they're doing is reading 2 Kings chapter 1. Elisha did the exact same thing. Elijah, he called fire down. And they're going, hey, let's do that. That was awesome. That worked. They're quoting the Bible to Jesus. And here's what he says. A new day is dawning. He says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, I just, don't you just love the scene? Do you want us to tell fire to come down? Hey, Jesus, should we call a fireball down right now? And Jesus is probably like, you think you have that kind of, he's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) But he turned to them and he what? He rebuked them. That's not my way. When Peter takes out a sword on the night that Jesus is betrayed, and he cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier, I'm guessing that Jesus just buries his head in his hands and goes, oh my gosh, I don't have any more time to teach these guys. I've only got one more thing to demonstrate the way that my kingdom comes. Picks up his ear, puts it back on his head, And walks to the cross to show him what victory really looks like. Because it doesn't come with a sword. It comes with a cross. And it doesn't come by putting people on them. The Jesus way is he hangs on it himself. And I'm not sure that we've gotten this, you guys. I don't know that we believe this. I really don't. I I was reading a book by a prominent atheist this week. His name's Sam Harris. And in the beginning of this book, listen to what he says. He says, since the publication of my first book, The End of Faith, thousands of people have written me to tell me that I'm wrong not to believe in God. The most hostile of these communications have come from Christians. This is ironic as Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply and even murderously intolerant of criticism. While we may may want to ascribe this to human nature, it is clear that such hatred draws considerable support from the Bible itself. I mean, you know what I wish he would have written? I wish he would have written. I couldn't agree any more, any less with these people. But the way that they respond, and the way that they treat me, and the things that they've said, actually reinforce the fact that they believe in the way of Jesus, that they, they believe that the way that we fight is with the weapon of love? Is it the way that we fight? Is it our Fort Knox? Is it the thing we're going to protect at all costs? And defend. See, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, he says, If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I love that. You want to win love. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, this is the way of Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says it as succinctly and clearly as it's said anywhere in the scriptures, but God shows or demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners or enemies of God, God did not kill us, he died for us. And his marching orders for his church is to do and to live in the exact same way. I love the way that the great theologian Miroslav Volf says it. He says this. To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with life. All around the world, friends, we have followers of Jesus who are emulating this way. We have brothers in Pakistan right now. One of them churches is led by a man named uh, Munawar Ramalasha. And he is leading the charge to love ISIS, to love the Taliban, to love people who are literally killing his congregation members. Here was his quote in a recent New York Times article. He said, we clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. This is not a theory for them. It's on the ground. And they're saying, no, 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 no. There's there's a lot of things we don't understand. But there's one thing we know that we're called to. And we know, we know, we know that we know that we know that we know him. If we love like him. And so that's what we're going to do. When it's difficult, that's what we're going to do. When people spit in our face, that's what they're going to do. When they literally put Bibles in the middle of the street and urinate on them, which they do there, what do they do? They love. And they continue to love and they continue to love, and they continue to love. Two questions for you as we close. One, man, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to justify hatred. I hate somebody or dislike somebody. I wouldn't say I hate because I'm a pastor, so you're, I'd, I'd say it. I don't like them because they don't like me i don't like them because they've hurt me i mean i hear christian followers of jesus all the time who will say we don't like those people because we're convinced that god doesn't like them either here's the thing if you want to use who god likes or loves as a grid god so loved the world that he gave his only son you've never laid eyes on a person whom god didn't love So so is there any way that you're justifying hatred? Here's my second question as we close. What does love demand of me? I'd love for you to, maybe it's just one situation going on in your life right now. You just jot it down. And then stand up and read it to us all. No, I'm just kidding. But what (laughs) one situation going on in your life right now where you know the Spirit of God is just going, this is that situation for you. Maybe it looks like serving somebody. Maybe it looks like confronting somebody because love isn't always soft. You know that, right? Love says what's true even when it's hard. But it says it with a seasoning of mercy and grace and love. Uh, Maybe it's a confrontation. Maybe it's being generous when you'd rather not. What does love demand of you? Yesterday, we were, as a family, we were um, carving pumpkins in our um, kitchen. And I noticed as they cut the top off of the pumpkin for my kids, and I took off the top, that the inside of it was just goopy and, and nasty and, and gross. And what we did was we, we hollowed all that stuff out, and we put it in the trash can, and then in place of all the gooey, nasty junk that was on the inside, we put these little candles, these little lights. And it struck me that Jesus wants to do the same thing with us, That by the power of his spirit, he wants to dig into our soul and he wants to take all of those things that cause us to walk, not in his victory, but in our own flesh, that cause us to walk and to stumble along the way. And he wants to take all of those things and he wants to, by the power of his spirit, he wants to carve them out. And then what he wants to do is he wants to put the light of his love in place of it. My prayer is that you and that I would surrender to that love today. Because friends, relationship with Jesus, it always, always, always looks like loving like Jesus. Imagine if we were that church. I'll tell you what would happen. Because we can see in history the way that it's happened. Those kinds of movements, they change the world. Father, I pray that by your Spirit's power, you would move us in the direction of love, just as you love. It's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me?